Welcome to the second season of the Fireside Podcast, presented by the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. I'm Chase Maxwell. Twenty-two years ago, the Friends began a storytelling series for adults. What could be better than sitting by the fire, sipping a warm cup of coffee or cider, while listening to some of the best writers Minnesota has to offer? Over the years, the Fireside series has featured a great range of authors, from Kate DiCamillo to Jack Weatherford, Carol Bly to Marlon James, making the winter just that much more bearable. The 2016 season continues this great legacy of presenting Minnesota's best authors reading by the fire. After a great response last year, we've decided to continue podcasting the series in its entirety. Catherine Madison closes the Fireside series with a reading from The War Came Home With Him, which tells the stories of two survivors of one man's war, a father who withstood a prison camp's unspeakable inhumanity and a daughter who withstood the residual cruelty that came home with him. Doc Boyson died 50 years after his ordeal, his POW experience concealed to the end in a hidden cache of documents. In the war came home with him, Madison pieces together the horrible tale these papers told of a young captain in the U.S. Army Medical Corps captured in July 1950, beaten and forced to march without shoes or coat on icy trails through mountains to camps where North Korean and Chinese captors held him for more than three years. As the truth about her father's past unfolds, Madison returns to a childhood troubled by his secret torment to consider, in a new light, the telling moments in their complex relationship. Journalist Madison was editor-in-chief of Utney Reader, a senior editor at Adweek and Creativity Magazine, founding editor of American Advertising, and editor-in-chief of Format Magazine. She's written articles for many publications, including the Chicago Tribune, Star Tribune, and Minnesota Monthly. The War Came Home With Him is a finalist for the 28th Annual Minnesota Book Awards. Thank you, Bailey, and thank everybody for coming. Wow, I'm gonna get to be on iTunes. I can't (laughs) sing it, I'm so excited. (laughs) So I'm gonna start tonight with uh, the question that I'm often asked, you'll get to ask questions later, but I'm often asked, how long did this book take to write? And that is probably the most difficult question that anybody can ask me because I feel like I have been working on this book as long as I can remember. And I've wanted to be a writer almost, almost as long as I can remember. Actually, I grew up in a medical family. As you'll find in the book, my father was a doctor, but both of my grandfathers were doctors. My uncle is a doctor. My mother was a nurse. And so I planned to, of course, follow in her footsteps until I was about eight years old. And I went to her and I said, Mom, I can't, I can't be a nurse. I just can't be a nurse. And she said, oh, why not? And I said, because I couldn't stand for a doctor to tell me what to do. <laughs> and, you know, I think I was right. <laughs> and she, she didn't, in those days, that was the 50s, and you were either a teacher or a secretary or a nurse. 
And she said, well, you're going to have to find something else. And I decided that I would have to write stories because that was the only thing that I could think that I would also want to do. And there was a very big story in our family that I wanted to know. It was one of those things when you're a little kid and you walk in the room and everybody shuts up. And there were little things that you would hear, but if you asked about them, your parents would change the subject. And that story had to do with my father and his experience in the Korean War, which was not talked about. And part of it might have been the age, but I think it's also the experience. So I always wanted to know this story. And as I got older, I got equipped. I got a journalism degree from the University of Minnesota. I got some experience. I learned how to tell stories. And I went to my father and I said, all right, I want to tell your story. Nope. And every once in a while, a book would come out. There aren't very many books about his experience, but every once in a while, there'd be one. And he would just flip out. Oh, they got it all wrong. It wasn't like that at all. And I said, well, you have your own story. You have to tell it. I can help you. Nope. I said, well, let me interview the people that you were in, in the war with. Nope. Well, let me make composite characters. You know, I can do a fiction piece. Nope. So I. I got nowhere. So it was a February night in 2002. My father is a bag of bones lying on his side under a thin hospital blanket. He's 78 and his kidneys are failing. His cheeks are sunken and his limbs spindly like those of an awkward teen in a growth spurt. My fingers, long and thin like his, could encircle his leg. Without his glasses, he squints at the Olympic figure skaters on a television suspended awkwardly from the ceiling. He peers out at me, his small nearsighted eyes the blue of robin eggs, from a long face whiskered in white, and he attempts the crooked grin I barely remember. I like that ballet, you know, he says. I don't understand what he means at first, ballet. So I have to ask, twice. He gestures at the graceful movements on the screen and explains that as a teenager, he used to travel from Pelican Rapids, where he grew up, to the Twin Cities, where he saw the ballet, you know. I didn't know this. I have never heard this before. I can't even imagine this. In my mind, he's 10 feet tall with a fist like a piston and a voice like Zeus. Perched on a pedestal of medical skill and military might, commanded our family with high standards and harsh discipline. He went to war and returned to hero. But he declined to cheer our victories from high school bleachers, celebrate our report card A's, or say I love you out loud. He reminded us often that we were just like everyone else. He loathed pomp and pretense, yet he stood alone and apart. He used force and fear to push us to be stronger, Try harder, aim higher, to survive when someone else might not. Behind his back, we call him Colonel, Surgeon, Father, God. He's my father, but I cannot hug him the way a daughter should. Not now, not the last time I saw him nearly two years ago, and not since I was old enough to know what it means to hug your dad. When I try, he stands ramrod straight, his feet slightly turned out, his hands dangling from skinny arms held close to his sides, his jaw set. 
I can reach my arms around him, which in recent years I've mustered up the courage to try, but he's like a flagpole, cold, hard, upright, a patriot, stilled. I know he wasn't always this way. Before my mother died in 1995, she died very quickly of lung cancer, she put together a, a VHS, a DVD VHS, it was a VHS, um, of what she called precious moments. We used to haul around when we moved from one place to another. We hauled around all these uh, cans of eight millimeter film. In fact, I just found them in my attic. I still have those eight millimeter cans of film. And she put them all together on, on the cassette and put it in to watch it. And most of the things I was familiar with, I remembered the Christmas that we spent in San Antonio, Texas, when it was 95 degrees on Christmas, and I had to wear this felt skirt, the big circle skirts from those days with it. I didn't have poodles, I had Christmas trees and wreaths that she had made. And of course, it went with this little fuzzy sweater that I also had to wear. And there are pictures of me, and I have a big frown on my face, but that's more about the fact that I didn't get the Nancy Drew mystery that I wanted. I got clothes, I hated getting clothes for Christmas. And I remembered the, there was an Easter. We lived in Germany then, and I had a home perm and a big shiny headband and black shoes and awful government-issued glasses. I remembered all those things, but the video opened with a shocker. It was a clip of my parents' wedding in Boonesboro, Maryland. My mother had always described September 14, 1947, simply as god-awful hot. There she was in that video, nervous, looking like Lauren Bacall. She had wide turquoise eyes and perfectly arched eyebrows, milk-white skin, full lipstick red lips, and dark brunette hair wringing her shoulders and curls. She was trying hard not to trip down the steep steps of the red brick church in her long sleeve shiny gown and sweeping train. And there beside her, offering his arm, was my father, a jokester, loose-limbed and laughing, acting the goof. I hit rewind. There he was again. He kissed her on the cheek, whispered in her ear, right there in public. I had no doubt that after the camera ran out of film, he'd not only have hugged her, but also swung her around in glee, train and all. I was seeing this, but I could not make sense of it. My mother had told me stories of their college escapades at the University of Minnesota the time he drank too much at a Phi Chi frat party and dumped water over his head to sober up, only to have his wet hair freeze solid, sticking straight up as he walked her back to the dorm. The time he took her sailing on Lake of the Isles, which was great except that they forgot the paddle and when the wind died, they couldn't make it back for curfew. I never did find out what happened when they didn't make it back for curfew. That was a big deal in those days. I loved hearing these stories but they weren't about the man I called my father. That man was stern and serious, principled and aloof, unpredictable. He scared me. He scares me still. When I drove 80 miles from the Atlanta airport to the Athens hospital, I caught myself gripping the steering wheel of the rented car in strangled fear. The fear I used to feel when I barely came up to his waist and then his shoulder when he towered over me in army greens and shouted me down with a voice I couldn't match. In the car, I was five again, 
or 15. It didn't matter. It's never gone away, that power he possesses over my brothers and me. As I sit looking at him now, shrunken in his cranked up bed, I wonder what almighty fire could have forged that steel. I know, of course, that the answer lies in his past as well as my own. Some of our past is shared. The years he spent training to be an army surgeon, then commanding army hospitals in Vietnam and Japan. But earlier years he spent as a prisoner of war in Korea are a yawning silent chasm that wraps us in solitary shamed cocoons. My brothers and I know only the basics, the existence of a cruel guard called the Tiger, a wintry mountain trek called the Death March, the evil called communism. Shards of his story pierce the silence at odd times in odd ways, perhaps during a midnight wine-soaked ramble or in an email forwarded by a cousin we seldom see. But for the most part, he does not tell us what we long to know, and we do not ask. Tonight, as my father squints at Sarah Hughes executing the loop jumps and double axles that will win gold, I sit with my questions. I think of all there is unspoken between us. I don't know where to start. I wonder whether it matters anymore. For once, my silence feels voluntary, uncompelled. He asked me to call the nurse. He scooted down too far in the bed, can't see the TV. Takes her a while to arrive. When she does, she asks me to help. I go to one side of the bed while she takes the other, and on the count of three, we grab the sheets folded under him and lift. Takes two tries to get him to the right spot. I'm surprised at how light he is and how it is possible for me to move him at all. This man, so heavy in my life, weighs less than I thought, less than what makes me afraid. How long has it been this way? I say goodnight and drive to his house, sneaking peeks at the map I've laid in the passenger seat, but no longer gripping the steering wheel. I sleep fitfully in the guest room. What I don't realize is that under the same roof, in my father's office, cluttered with ash-dusted stacks of books and papers, medical and workshop tools, and messy piles of bills and empty envelopes, is something that has been hidden away, undisturbed, for nearly 50 years. Mere weeks from now, someone will yank too hard on the bottom drawer of the military gray file cabinet, pulling it all the way out onto the floor by mistake. Underneath, where the drawer had been, my brothers and I will discover a fat and faded Department of the Army manila envelope we have never seen. Across the top, in our mother's handwriting, two lines under it, two exclamation points at the end, she's written the whole story. Well, that envelope was packed. It was packed with those onion skin papers. He had indeed written the story. He'd written it for the Army when he came home. He'd also written it as affidavits in a trial uh, that I was to find out about later. Um, and we also found on his hard drive, he had done what I had always asked him. He had started writing his own story. So suddenly I had so much material I didn't know where to begin. And a friend of mine here said, oh yeah, you know, he's got an interesting story, but that's not the real story. And I said, well, what's the real story? And he said, 
your story. And I'm like, my story wasn't interesting. It was his story that was interesting. He said, no, 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 no. You have to do both stories. It's important that you do both stories because his affected yours. And I thought, well, okay. He, I, he took him a while, but he finally talked me into it. But then I had a real conundrum because I couldn't figure out how to do the timing because all of his story happened when I was a baby and all of my story was afterwards. And so it would have seemed like one book and then the other book. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to do. So I, I finally decided if I didn't get going, I'd never get it done. And I decided to just take turns. Just, you know, do a little bit of his, a little bit of mine, a little bit of his, a little bit of mine. And when I got it all done, then we'd figure out, uh, then I'd figure out how to put it all together. And um, I never imagined that that's the way the book would turn out, but it is. It's all the odd chapters are his and the, taken from his words wherever possible and all the even chapters were mine. And still I had to decide where to begin. So I decided to begin where, where that hard drive version of his story began, with a line of dialogue. Doc, you got a phone call. My father's name was Alexander. His family called him Lexi. His friends and my mother called him Pete from his childhood when all the friends decided to call each other by their father's names. Go figure. Pelican Rapids, you know. But his buddies called him Doc. It was June 25th, 1950, and my mother was calling from Boonesboro. I was eight months old, and we had been staying with her parents since my father left for Yokohama on May the 15th. A captain in the U.S. Army Medical Corps, he had volunteered for temporary duty there. Doc took the phone. North Korea just invaded South Korea. They're calling it a police action, said my mother. What's going to happen to you? Will you have to go? He heard the distress in her voice, but he didn't know what to say. He wasn't even sure how close Japan was to Korea or what the fighting there might mean. He reminded her that he had volunteered to go to Japan instead of waiting to be assigned because the Army said orders wouldn't be changed for volunteers. As soon as his 90 days were over, he could return home. Don't worry, I got it in writing, he said. The U.S. Army will keep its word. <laughs> She was not convinced. She liked to say that worrying is a waste of energy because it doesn't change a thing, but she was worried then. So what do I do now, she asked. Just go home and we'll take it from there, he tried to reassure. The Army will help you if you have questions. I'll be fine, and I'll be home soon. Well, he was not home soon. He was in the first contingent of troops that got sent to, Japan was very close to Korea actually, they put him on a boat, shipped him across, and he was in that first contingent, but they were very ill prepared. Most of the troops that were there were young, they had very little training. He was a doctor, so he was assigned to the medical battalion. He opened his kit of materials, he found plaster of Paris that was rock hard, he found scalpels that were rusty, he found scissors that broken. He, he found a little bit of morphine, a little bit of aspirin, he put in his pockets. Uh, the, the troops had the same trouble with guns and ammunition. In fact, my father tried to get someone to teach him to shoot and give him a gun, and the guy said, sorry, no guns. Uh, so they were very poorly prepared, and he got sent to the front lines, and they were very quickly overrun by the Koreans. 
And he, they were running, as he would put it, all hell broke loose. Uh, this was on July 10th, 1950. And his commanding officer was running down the hill and told him to just get the hell out of there. And his commanding officer was dropped by a bullet. My father dropped into a rice paddy and pretended to be dead. Shooting went on for hours. And he finally got up and went what he thought was south. And he was befriended by a Korean farmer and his wife who gave him food and who drew a map in the dirt to try to help him escape. But by the next morning, he had been captured. And my mother got a telegram saying that he was missing in action. And the help the Army gave was to tell her that she could no longer live where we lived because he was not there. So we had to move. We lived in Fort Lewis, Washington, and we had to move out of our housing and find somewhere else to live until he came back or not. So we moved across the country to West Virginia. We lived with my grandparents for a while. My mother and my grandmother did not get along particularly well. So we, she and I, my mother and I, moved to Martinsburg, West Virginia, and got a little apartment in the Arden Apartments. She got a night job as a nurse so she could be with me. And that's where my memories began. I was about three, and I was playing across the hall with a friend. My mother was sitting in our living room, scanning the paper for war news, when she heard my footsteps bounding across the wooden floors. I ran into our apartment and slammed the door. She frowned at me. Don't slam the door. I scowled right back. Do I have a daddy? Yes, you do. I stomped my foot. My face flushed. Then where is he? He's in Korea, she told me, fighting a war for our country. Well, that war was to last for three years, as many of you already know. And it was horrific, particularly the first winter uh, when many of the men starved. They also had to do a march. Uh, Korea is very much like the worst of Minnesota, 40, 40 degrees below zero. These men were in their fatigues. Many of them did not have shoes. They had to trek for 10 days under the command of this guard. And by the way, they weren't all military. Some of them were civilians. The youngest one was two. The oldest one was 80. And all these people were going over the snow, through the passes, through the mountains. And of the original group that my father was part of, there were 738 men. Only 275 of them survived. So it was pretty awful. And the armistice, as many of you also know, the war is still going on. There's, all, there's no peace treaty. There was an armistice that was signed. And the prisoners were released in groups. And every day my mother would sit with her neighbor in those Arden apartments and listen to the radio. And they would read the list of the men who had survived who were going to be sent home. And everyone knew that the general, General Dean, uh, who commanded the troops there, had also been captured and that his name would be on the last day that they were releasing prisoners. Well, that day, my mother heard the list, and she heard General Dean's name, and she did not hear my father's name. And she, in a panic, called her father. They called Washington, and they found out there was one more list. 
So on the very last day, his name was on that list. And he came home, he didn't want to see me. He, he wrote her a letter and he said he didn't know me. I was four and he just remembered this baby that he used to toss in the air. And so I stayed with relatives and they got together and eventually we all got orders that we were to move to Texas. So we're all back together. And I was glad to have a daddy now, like everybody else, even though I hardly ever saw him. We'd moved into this house on Ridgehaven Place, which had dirt instead of a lawn and skinny little trees with hardly any leaves. Now that it was summer, we had to close the blinds in the daytime to keep the heat out because we didn't have an air conditioner. My mother wanted one, but my father said not yet, we could do without for a while. He was always doing without. He skipped lunch, which made my mother crabby because as she put it, she was a three squares a day gal. He said he just forgot to eat. And he liked to sleep on the floor. If it was Sunday afternoon or after supper, he stretched out on the living room rug and my mother had to step over him to get to the kitchen. I was careful to go around because I was afraid. Early one Sunday morning, I listened for movement in my parents' room across the hall. I had a new book and I wanted someone to read with me before it got too hot to sit close and turn the pages. I tiptoed across the hall, the wooden floor cool on my bare feet, and stopped to peek through the partly open door. I heard only loud breathing. I pushed the door and went in. My father wasn't sleeping on the floor. He was on the bed next to my mother. He was lying on his back, naked. My mother had bought him pajamas, but he left them in the package. He didn't need clothes to sleep. I took one step forward so I could look at his face to see if he was waking up. His eyelids didn't move. He looked funny without his glasses. His arms were crossed on his stomach. He made a little noise every time he breathed out. I didn't know if it was okay to ask for breakfast yet, so I just stood there waiting. Suddenly his right arm smacked my chest as he bolted out of bed and flung me high across the space between bed and wall. My back hit the wall with a thud and I crashed in a heap on the floor. My mother screamed. I didn't move because I couldn't breathe. He didn't mean to, he didn't mean to. My mother kept crying as she picked me up and took me back to my room and sat me down on the bed. My chest hurt. Sobs were starting to come in gasps. You just startled him, she said. But I didn't do anything, I thought. I only watched. Well, I too, grew up with a startle reflex. Uh, my kids used to make fun of me uh, because they would tell me they were gonna throw a ball at me and I would know the ball was coming, but then when they all of a sudden did it, I would jump and miss the ball. And then when they were teenagers, they didn't dare wake me up when they came in from a date because they knew it would make my heart pound and my, <clears throat> and my blood race and I wouldn't be able to sleep for another two hours. But I didn't realize until after years of therapy, I finally asked my therapist what my diagnosis was, and she said, oh, PTSD. And I'm like, what? Uh, nothing bad ever happened to me. You know, bad things happen to other people, but not to me. Well, it turns out that startle reflex is one of the biggest, uh, most common symptoms of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we talk about PTSD now, but it has always been a part of war. It used to be called shell shock back in the day, and then it was combat fatigue, 
But this was something that we never discussed in our family. And I only realized later as I started to put the pieces together and as I learned this information about my father. And then I started thinking about other ways that the war affected us that, that I, I, didn't, I never associated. And one of those was having to do with food. Now some of you are old enough, not all of you, some of you, uh, to remember the Clean Plate Club? Anybody remember the Clean Plate Club? You know, we couldn't let those children in China starve. I never did figure that out. Well, we had the Clean Plate Club in our family and not eating was a sin. And for the most part, I did pretty well with it. But there were two things that always got to me. And one of them happened to be oysters. My father's favorite food. He loved oysters and he had a Christmas birthday so we always had oyster stew on Christmas Eve. I dreaded Christmas Eve. And one year I was sick and I thought, ah. we always had to go to bed when we were sick. I thought, ah, I won't have to eat the oyster stew. But my parents decided that I was indeed well enough to put on my blue corduroy bathrobe and come to the table and eat oyster stew. But my mother must have felt sorry for me because she only gave me three oysters. They were rubbery lumps of misery. <laughs> I couldn't swallow them whole and I couldn't chew them. When she wasn't looking, I plucked one out of my mouth and held it under the chair for the dog. The dog took one sniff and went to sit by my brother's chair instead. <laughs> so I slid the oyster into my bathrobe pocket. No one noticed. The other oysters followed. <laughs> a year passed. Christmas again. Remember last year, my mother asked? What? Your oysters. Remember what you did with them? No, I lied. You put them in your pocket. And when I hung your bathrobe on the clothesline a few weeks later, they fell out and bounced across the grass. <laughs> hard as rocks. My father chuckled. Eat your oysters, he said. Somehow, I got them down. But I soon developed my own set of eating rules. Number one, eat bad stuff first. Gulp it down, even if it makes you gag. Just make it vanish from your plate so you don't have to dread it. Then you have only good stuff to look forward to. Number two, eat bad stuff while it's hot. The only thing worse than hot awfulness is cold awfulness. Number three, save the best till last. If everything left on your plate is good, save the best longest so you have something to eat when no one else does. If good always follows bad and full always follows empty, then all will be right with the world, at least for a while. One night at dinner, I got so busy eating mashed potatoes and fried chicken, my mother fixed the absolute best fried chicken in that electric fry pan that I forgot my eating rules and let my asparagus get cold. That was my other nemesis. I sat staring at it. Canned asparagus smelled like the mildew on our porch chairs, and I especially hated the stringiness. The tender spear tip was easier to eat than the woody stem, but if all of it was cold, it didn't much matter. My father looked down at my plate. Finish your asparagus, he said. I couldn't. I really couldn't, but I didn't dare say so. Eat it, he said again. You will stay here until you do. 
I wasn't too worried yet. He wasn't clearing his throat and his face wasn't getting red. He was smoking his after-dinner cigarette. When he was really mad, he would dangle it under his, under his lip, but he was smoking it. I looked at the asparagus. Maybe it would taste better colder, I thought. No, it was already colder. I could smell it. I couldn't eat it. My father sat there with me. I stared at the whiteness of the walls, at the crumbs left on the tablecloth. It was quiet in the dining room. Men died because they were picky like you, he said. Who? Prisoners. But who? He wouldn't answer. He puffed on his cigarette and peered out through the smoke at something I couldn't see. My throat was closing. I could hear my mother starting the dishes and knew she wouldn't rescue me. I felt like I'd swallowed a golf ball. I had to do something while I could still breathe. I put a bite of asparagus in my mouth and chewed. Chewed until I couldn't chew anymore, then swallowed and gagged. The woody stem had hit a snag. When it wouldn't go down, its friends came back up. <laughs> I vomited on the plate. My father looked down at the gray-green mound of half-digested food. Eat that. I looked up at him, but I couldn't find Daddy. He looked at me with eyes of blue ice, but I could tell he didn't see me. It was as if I had disappeared, or he had. I sat alone at that table, my plate before me, with an empty man. Eat, he said. I ate. that he spent in Korea, men lost weight rapidly. They would get two rice balls a day and a little cabbage soup, every once in a while some beans, but nothing, no burgers and fries, nothing. And my father being a doctor was trying to do what he could to help the men, and so he was trying to do sick call. And he had one uh, rather overweight soldier who came to him my father knew that they were getting the, enough nutrition to keep them alive, not to keep them fat, not to keep them uh, from being hungry like they were in America, but to stay alive. And yet this guy had uh, symptoms of starvation, malnutrition. So he asked him what he was eating. Was he eating his food? And the GI said, my mother never made me eat rice and I'll be damned if I will eat it here. My father paid attention to that. That stuck with him. And he began to notice, as men started dying, as the time went on, that there was a pattern with men. A lot of people you'll find if you read, a lot of the, uh, the, the historians will call it give up-itis, uh, that, that men would just give up and die. But he didn't believe in that. He thought there was more to it than that. And the pattern was that the men would, would quit taking care of themselves. They'd find all kinds of reasons not to go on wood detail. They would quit picking lice. They had to pick lice every day because they were all besieged with lice. And a person who was in this state would start complaining about the food and finding excuses for not eating it. The less he ate, the more bitter he became toward his family, his country, and himself. 
When dysentery set in and he rapidly lost strength, it became easier to die than to live, and so he died. Doc recognized that not eating led to not surviving, although it would take him much longer to understand that going hungry killed the will to live before it starved the body. He started singling out the men who played with their food and made sure that they were seated in a special part of the dining room where they had to stay until they cleaned their plates. He reasoned that if he could force them to eat a daily ration, he could force them to live. Never mind that they spent most of their time and energy swearing at everyone and begging to be left alone to die and get it over with. Go to hell, man. What do you care? Mind your own business. Doc wasn't about to give up. He and his assistants grabbed and choked the offenders until they ate, releasing them only when they motioned that they were willing to eat on their own. It was a slow process, sometimes taking eight to 12 hours a day. But after a few meals in the special area where they could hear the jeers of their peers, many began to eat again. Others kept eating just to avoid the humiliation. This ruthless strategy didn't work when the men were too far gone or too belligerent, but despite numerous loud protests, the practice continued. The successful cases gradually returned to some semblance of normal, still bitching about the horrid fare, but now that they were eating to live rather than living to eat, feeling more positive about survival. Doc was force-feeding hope. And you would think after all those years of rice that he would never want to touch it again. But actually the opposite was the case. A friend that I connected with after this book came out told me a story that I'd never heard before about my parents going to her parents' house for dinner party and her mother realizing that my father had been in Korea and she had rice on the menu and apologized profusely to him. And he said, oh, that's all right. I love rice, it kept me alive. And until the day he died, he ate rice all the time, adored his rice cooker. And the older I got, the more I understood what being in the military was all about. You would also think that after such a horrendous experience, he would go as far as he could from the army, but instead he became a career military officer, which a lot of his colleagues did as well. And we were sent to Germany when I was about 10. We were there for three years during the Cold War with the Berlin Wall up. It was a very interesting time where I, I came to understand what serving our country meant. Uh, people would do evacuations to the coast in case something blew up. We were there during the Cuba Missile Crisis, so we all had to wear dog tags all the time, except I kept mine under my pillow. Um, so I started to understand, and finally at the end of three and a half years, we were sent home, and we were on a, a troop ship where they, the, all the parents had their cabins and all the kids were in dorms. It was a very odd experience being on a troop ship. The troops and the families were not allowed to mix. Um, but at dinner on our last full day in the boat, my father announced that we'd all get up at dawn the next morning. Why, I whined. I was 13, I whined a lot. <laughs> To see the Statue of Liberty, he said. I don't want to see the Statue of Liberty, I said. It's too early. Besides, I already saw it. He clenched his teeth, and I shut up. The next morning up on deck, it was still dark and damp with dew. Mute and ghost-like figures began to fill the empty spots behind the rail 
in silent, shifting layers. Some grabbed life jackets to ward off the chill. Our family huddled together as I watched the water, a deeper gray than the sky, rolling in hills and valleys. Then she pierced the mist with her torch, chin held high in the breaking light. We were closer than I had imagined to that statue. A woman along the rail started singing God Bless America. I looked up at my father's face as he stared, rapt, while other voices joined in. I wanted him to reach down and put his hand on my shoulder, but he did not. I stretched tall, as if to be more beside him, and found solace in the fact that so many of us stood there together, about to end our voyage, strangers no longer. Land of the free, my father said, so only we could hear. We were home, and the war came home with us. We've reached one of the best parts of the Fireside series, the Q&A with the author and our dedicated audience at Hamlin Midway Library. It's a chance to go beyond the book, connecting readers and writers on a deeper level. To make it easier for you, the listener, I've summarized the questions and we'll read them. First up, an audience member asked Madison to explain the title of the book. Was it that the experiences of war changed her father's personality, or was it that he was haunted by his memories and ghosts from his past? It's that the, his personality changed. And it was interesting that when he was coming, they, they had to, he didn't come home right away. They had to come home on a ship. And they were in Japan. And he wrote a letter to my mother, which she kept. And it said, I suppose I have changed, but I really don't think so. I really don't notice anything. But he, he was such a different person, and that's what I saw in the video. I, I simply did not recognize him. And I, I, a lot of people ask about my mother, and I think for my mother, while she was glad to have him home and while she loved him, I think it was heartbreaking for her. This was not the man that she married. This was not the carefree man that used to, used to toss me in the air when I was an infant. And, and there are pictures of me as an infant, and I was happy. I was not the serious person that I'd become. I was happy, and um, and I'm I'm sure. Just think what it must have been for this growing up and this father coming home every day and going through this ritual, and then one day he just doesn't come home, and he doesn't come home for almost four years. I, that just I you know I, I I try to put myself in the place. Writing this book has helped me understand so much that I didn't understand. And it also makes me realize how uh, shared this experience is. We have all these troops coming home from, from Afghanistan and Iran, Iraq, and uh, they have children. And those children probably don't dare ask, just like I didn't dare ask. And they have spouses who are trying to cope with the new person that has come. And Korea, there's still 24,000 people stationed on the DMZ, where there's a lot of friction right now between North and South Korea. So some things haven't changed a whole lot. Was Madison's father alive when the memoir was published? When did she acquire the materials needed to complete the book? I had, uh, flirted with the idea that I was going to be my journalist self 
and go to reunion. In later years, the men who had survived the tiger, they called themselves the tiger survivors, would have reunions. And I think that really helped my father a lot because my mother convinced him to go after a few years. And I decided I would go and I would interview people to find a lot of the details about my father. And I <laughs> very quickly learned a lesson when one of the people my father was closest to I asked him what the tiger looked like, and he looked at me and he said, every day I forget a little more, and I want to keep it that way. He did not want to talk about that. And I, naive that I was, thought these reunions were about telling war stories. They were not about telling war stories. They were about a band of brothers who was coming together because these men had been through such hell together that they were the connections. I mean, they. You know, they drew for door prizes and talked about their wives and the food, and they they did not talk about any of this. So I had I had to abandon abandon that idea um, of doing complete historical fact, and I also um, abandoned the idea of telling the story of uh, Korean prisoners. There were 13 prison camps. We had like 7,200 American prisoners. Uh, who were captive during the Korean War. And 38% of them did not make it. That's the largest percentage of American prisoners who've died in any war to date. Um, and I, I just realized that there were more horrific conditions than I describe in the book because my father did not experience them. So I stuck to what he wrote. I used his words wherever possible. I would have to fill in little gaps here and there. Using very trusted sources, he also left behind uh, letters and, and manuscripts from people who had been with him. And I found those very valuable. They're all listed in the sources. But to the extent that I could, I really, I really stuck to what, what he wrote. When Madison's father was a POW for more than three years, did her mother know his whereabouts or whether or not he was alive? Also, did Madison's mother or other family members ever openly discuss the change in his personality? I'll answer the second question first, no. Or, or at least not in my hearing. And my sense was it was also very difficult for my mother to talk about it, and she felt very isolated. She did not know for quite a while. She kept a, a scrapbook, and she was very meticulous. Thank you, Mom. She, she was very organized, and later on in the book, I found this scrapbook when I was a teenager, and I was ecstatic because I was so hungry. I mean, can you imagine having this big story with it you know nothing about? So hungry for this information, but things happened when I brought up the fact that I had found this scrapbook, and the scrapbook disappeared, and I never found it again. And that day, when we, uh, one of my brothers pulled the file cabinet out and it fell out and we found this treasure trove of material, one of my brothers said, did anybody ever find that scrapbook? And we all looked at each other, and my other brother said, well, I found it once, but then it disappeared. And my brother said, well, that's what happened to me. And that's what happened to me. And this was the first time that the three of us had even shared with each other the existence of this scrapbook. And the telegrams in there 
did say when, when they found him again, or when, when he, they knew he was alive, and there were pictures that were published in Life magazine, the big picture uh, magazine, and people all over the country cut out this one picture and sent it to my mother saying, isn't this Pete? And it, it, was, it was indeed. And thanks to her organization, I, I have those pictures now. So some of them are on my website, by the way, if any of you want to look online, look under the title of the book. Um, we kind of assembled some of those pictures, so. Are Madison's brothers younger than her, and did her father treat them differently than her when she was growing up? They are younger. They were born after he came back. So, so they're five and seven and a half years younger. So it's almost like we had two, two separate two separate families. They each have their stories, and that was another executive decision I had to make. I know at one point when I described one incident that happened to me in the book to one of my brothers, he looked at me and he said, that didn't happen. He wasn't there. And they have said things that happened to them, but I, 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 that was hearsay. <laughs> So I, I really wanted to make it my, my story and my father's story to the best that we could. So I, I, didn't, I didn't go there. I, some people have said they seem like ghosts in the book, uh, but they were quite a bit younger than me. You know, a lot of these formative things happen when I was a teen and, you know, when you're 17, a 10-year-old, eh, you don't pay attention. So, and actually one of my brothers is a very good writer, so we'll see if he, if he tells his own version of the story. Did Madison have a goal of writing so many words or hours per day? And did she have a deadline from her publisher to complete the book? Oh. <laughs> this book took forever. I finally decided that uh, I would never get it done. I'm, I'm a freelance journalist and I always had a lot of work. I finally decided I would never get it done until I made it a priority, which also meant that if work came in, I, I would still do the work first. I used to tell people that if you gave me a nickel to write a grocery list, I'll put that right on top of my list. It, it was very, very difficult to do this. So I did have a goal, two hours a day. And let me tell you, two hours a day was a lot. And there were huge periods of time where nothing happened. But I, I, I kept going back to it. And my advice to writers is always easy. Two words, don't quit. <laughs> I didn't have a publisher. I just wrote it. Yes, I, I, I have a friend, in fact, he's here, Andy, who, who is a published author and had an agent. And I met with her agent and I said, here's a sample of my writing and, and here's what I'm, how I'm gonna develop this book. And, she said, uh, memoir is like novel. You have, to, you have to write the book first. A nonfiction book, they will, uh, you can usually get an agent and often a publisher based on a proposal. But she told me to, to write the book first. And it was very good advice because this book kept changing. And when I finally thought I would uh, got it written, I gave it to two friends of mine who were editors and writers and they took a few months to read it, and they both handed it back and said, uh, you kind of need to start over. And I was devastated, but 
I, I was a journalist and traditionally trained journalists write in what's called an inverted pyramid. So uh, they start, the first graph has all the necessary information and it just kind of winnows down from that. So if the story's too long, an, a hurried editor can chop it off at the bottom. And I wrote my chapters like that. I just summarize everything in the beginning and kind of by the end of the chapter, I'd get into something interesting. And they said, no, you, you have to, you have to turn it all upside down. So I started all over again, and that took me a year to just start all over and, you know. And that was only the second draft. <laughs> Books are hard. How did Madison's use of therapy affect the book? Was writing the book its own act of therapy? Also, does Madison still suffer from PTSD? I still have PTSD, although I think it's gotten better and my therapist did say the next, the next step on trying to solve, particularly the startle reflex, was to go through hypnosis, which I thought was really interesting. But I didn't do that. I did the therapy before. And, and I think the therapy gave me a voice, allowed me to express myself. I mean, growing up in this, this military-heavy family, you followed orders. You didn't say why. You didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I got something else to do. You did what you were told. And if you had an opinion, you kept it to yourself. And if you want to do creative writing, you can't keep your opinions to yourself. I mean, you have, you have to have a voice. So I, I actually credit therapy. So I think we need to wrap. Thank you all. You've been listening to the second season of the Fireside Podcast, presented by the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Fireside will return in late January 2017 to Hamlin Midway Library. Until then, we hope you consider supporting the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library and its mission, Stronger Libraries for Stronger Communities. Learn more at thefriends.org. Follow us on Twitter at The Friends and on Facebook at facebook.com slash friends of SPPL. Please consider subscribing to this podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much. 